So we've been, uh, the last couple of conferences, this conference and the last one, we've been taking these afternoon sessions just to, to share some things. Uh, we used to do more of like a discussion Q&A type thing. We'll have some discussion after I share a little bit, but we've, we've for a variety of reasons, decided, for those of you who are new, just to kind of do a little bit of um, teaching or sharing on, on the afternoon sessions and we spend a lot of the other uh, times together waiting on the Lord and just sharing as we feel led by him to do so, but we've felt for some time now that there's a, a need for um, <clears throat> just some discussing of, of things in a, in a plain, uh, clear way. And, and Jared yesterday was talking about some, some things about salvation that I think are really fundamental and, and very generally misunderstood um, that was really good for those of you who missed it. Um, there might be, I think, audios available afterwards. But today I thought, as I was thinking about what I wanted to <clears throat> share about, the thing that was coming to my mind this afternoon was the the daily cross of Christ. And I might kind of take the scenic route to get to, to talking about that. Uh, I've been talking on Sundays. We have similar times like this on Sundays, and I've been talking about how how necessary, how incredibly important it is as Christians for us to become <clears throat> familiar with the Spirit of God. And if if anyone uh, picks up the New Testament and begins to read through the New Testament, you're going to bump into a whole, a whole bunch of verses that talk about the reality that as Christians, we're supposed to be in every way led by the Spirit, governed by the Spirit, taught by the Spirit. We're supposed to learn to walk in the Spirit, Paul says, to live in the Spirit. We're supposed to be praying in the Spirit at all times, Paul says. Uh, Jesus tells us in John chapter 4 that the hour has come when the true worshipers will worship in the, in the Spirit. Um, Romans chapter, we could go through so many of these. Romans chapter 8 talks about by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. Uh, Galatians talks about the fruits of the Spirit that are supposed to be growing in us in a whole lot of ways. The, the New Testament talks about being guided by the Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. And we've been talking about on, on Sundays how almost everybody that <clears throat> claims to be a Christian believes those verses and would be entirely in agreement with the necessity of of believing those things and and in, in agreement with the, the reality that the Spirit of God is the the doer, the actor, the changer, the purifier, the sanctifier, the, the one who teaches in the New Covenant. And yet it's, I think, apparent um, to anyone that's willing to see it that there's a great unfamiliarity with the Spirit of God. We're very familiar with the verses that talk about the Spirit of God. We're very familiar with singing about the Spirit of God and reading about the Spirit of God. But 
I think there are far, far fewer people who are familiar with actually what it means to to know the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to come under subjection to the work of the Spirit, to hear the voice of the Spirit of God. And almost everybody, well, every, everybody that, that is a believer, a real believer, has had some kind of an experience with the Spirit of God because there's no other way to, to be a Christian. You can't just decide to be a Christian with your brain. Uh, Christian is, Christianity isn't a belief that you have about God. Christianity is God working in you. It's Christ given to you, Christ alive in you. It's you coming to a birth of the life of Christ. And unless you're born of that spirit, then, as Jesus says, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so anyone that's actually had any real beginning of a life as a Christian has had some kind of an, an experience of that spirit. Um, and if that sounds foreign or strange to you, then I just would, honestly would just recommend you bring the, that, that feeling of foreignness or strangeness to the Lord and be real sincere and honest with him about that. If all of the New Testament talks about living in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, dying to the flesh by the power of the Spirit, all the things we just talked about and more, and the Spirit of God, the experience of the Spirit of God still sounds like a foreign concept or a, or a fairy tale or some kind of an abstract concept to you, then that, that's okay if that's where you are. But I would, I would think that the thing you need to do then is to try to bring to the Lord uh, the question, why is that the case? Why do I have beliefs about the Spirit and I have no experience of the Spirit? <coughs> that would be a very wise thing to do. It doesn't do us any good to lie to ourselves. It's, it's really the most foolish thing that we can do is pretend that we are something, have something, know something that we really don't know, have, or are. That's a real common thing. Everyone likes to do that, likes to self-talk and all of that, but that doesn't get you anywhere when it comes to spiritual life. And so far, far wiser and better than assuming we're somewhere we're not and claiming ourselves to be somewhere we're not is to do what Jesus said and come like a humble little child to him, like one that's willing to be taught, that's willing to be corrected, that's willing, willing to be shown that we're living in the wrong life, believing maybe in the right life, but experiencing little or nothing of it. And if we can, that's all, all that is needed is that humble heart to walk before the Lord in that way. And he will teach you all that you need to know and give all that you don't have and form in you all that you you could never produce from yourself. But unless you are, as Jesus says, unless, unless you are converted and become like a little child, you will never see the kingdom of God. And so I say all that because it's so important for us to not just begin in the Spirit. Galatians chapter 3 talks about Paul's warning the Galatians. He's saying, are you so foolish to, to begin by the Spirit and try to come to maturity by the flesh? So many of us do that. That's like a plague, I think, in, in, uh, in, in the church. It's been a part of my life, too. 
have a real beginning in the Spirit, a real conviction, a real awakening, a real convincing that comes by the Spirit, a warming of my heart, a drawing to God, something that didn't come from my brain, something that didn't come from a book, but, but came from the moving, the stirring, the living, the shaking of the Holy Spirit of God. To have that be the thing that calls the heart to God and instead of staying close to that spirit that moves and shakes and awakens and teaches and convicts and shows evil in our own heart and draws us to something that's good, instead of learning to stay with that spirit, to walk in that spirit, to love that spirit and his appearings and his operations in the heart of man, Instead of that, to then go on and try to grow or to advance or to become further qualified for ministry or anything in the church apart from the Spirit. Now, nobody says they're doing that. Nobody, nobody says, you know what, I started in the Spirit, but I think I'm going to actually finish in the flesh. No one is going to actually say that with their mouth, but so many people do that with their lives. They feel something. Maybe one night when they're laying in bed thinking about how their life isn't what they thought it was going to be. Whatever. Maybe they just hear the, a vile expression come out of their mouth one day and a conviction strikes them and, 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 and something in them says, where do you think that that grossness is coming from? Or maybe you're reading a scripture passage as you've read a thousand times before and all of a sudden something jumps out of the page and, and punches you in the stomach and you feel the weight of it. That is the Spirit of God. It didn't come from your brain. It didn't come from your flesh and it certainly didn't come from Satan. It came from another spirit, another life that is sent of God to draw you to Christ. To a new life, not, a, not, a, not just a new belief about Christ, to a new life in Christ. And, and so, um, uh, the, the thing that we all need then, understanding what, what I just said, or having kind of laid that out, the thing that we all need is to learn to become familiar with that spirit. <clears throat> there's a lot of imaginations about what that means. Um, there's a whole lot of um, fluff and hype, I think, about, about the spirit that I think is, is far from what the spirit of God really begins to do in the heart that gives up to follow him. And I, and I think, and what I'm going to try to talk about, if I can get to it, is that the thing that I think the Spirit of God does is it brings you to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what the Spirit of God really does in every heart that gives up to follow him. And I'm not talking about the historical cross of 2,000 years ago. I'm talking about the daily cross. The deny yourself, pick up your cross every day and follow me, that cross. That's where the Spirit of God leads us. And, and, if, and if we're going to grow, if we're going to increase in our experience of life in the Spirit, of truth, living truth in the Spirit, of righteousness in the Spirit, of worship in the Spirit, of a new life, a new nature, made new in the Spirit of God, created again, a new creation working in us by the Spirit of God, if that's going to be our reality 
then we need to learn, all of us, every one of us has to learn to stay close to the Spirit of God. Losing sight of our guide is how we go astray. We might not go astray from our doctrines. We might not go astray from church attendance. But we will go astray from that spirit that works in us, both to put to death in us all that is contrary to Christ and to raise and fill us with all that is of and in and from his spirit. And the reason why I think this kind of spiritual Christianity is more sung about and talked about and read about than it is lived in the, in the church today is because, bear with me here and I'll explain what I mean by this, but it's because nobody likes the work of the Spirit of God. And I, I mean that real seriously. The natural man, all of us, what we are by nature, we don't like what the Spirit of God comes to do in us and to us. We like the Spirit of God insofar and only as far as the Spirit of God benefits our natural man. And for that, for, and that kind of religion is very, very popular. To have a, a spiritual power that will affirm what we already are doing and will bless what's already important to us and will protect the things that we love to have a, a, have a, have a spiritual uh, a power that'll take us to a better place when we die or comfort us when, uh, when, when with thoughts of better things will give us prosperity and health, health and peace and all kinds of things in the natural realm. That, that, that's that's a, a relationship with God that any, anyone will have. But, but if you begin to follow that spirit and see that he doesn't just want to bless and protect and affirm the outward man, but actually has a purpose of his own. Something he wants to do in man, something he wants to remove from man, something he wants to change in man, something he wants to give to man and form in man. Then we almost universally lose interest in a spiritual God. We like the sound of it. We don't like the experience of it. This is exactly what happened with Jesus too. Jesus came and as, as long as he was touching their outward bodies and healing them and casting out their demons and fixing their, their, their outward problems or making uh, water turn into wine or, or things of that nature, they loved him. But just as soon as he began to tell them that the only way to actually be his follower, the only way to be a disciple of Jesus Christ was to deny yourself, to pick up your cross, to follow him, to eat his flesh and drink his blood, he says in John chapter 6. What a strange thing to say. My life has got to be in you. And, wh and why does he say that that's true? Because unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. You have something and you call it life. You have a body and it has biological life. But you have nothing of what I call life. And what I've come to do is I've come to give life. I haven't, I haven't come to 
add some sprinkles on top of your life or to give you kind of like, I think, you know, croutons on a salad or something like that. I've come to give you something new. You don't have it. You need to be born of it. If you're not born of it, you'll never know it. You'll never find it. You'll never see it. You'll never enter into its kingdom. You don't have this life naturally. One guy came up to Jesus and said, let the dead bury, or he said, he said uh, I'll follow you as soon as I, I bury my father. And he said, let the dead bury their dead. You follow me. Let the dead bury their dead. What does that, what does that imply from Jesus' perspective? Those people were clearly not dead physically. They were standing in front of him and had busy schedules and lots of thoughts in their heads and plans. Well, when Jesus was touching the world of their first birth, if you can hear what I mean by that, I mean their natural birth, when he was touching their flesh. In one place, Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. The flesh profits nothing. It is the spirit who gives life. When he was touching the flesh, they loved him. When he was calling them out of the flesh to learn to live in and by his spirit, they screamed, crucify him. They said, these are hard sayings. Who can, who can endure them? And they stopped following him. And, and what I'm trying to say is that what was going on then is what is going on now and what has always been going on. We love when power from God touches the world that we have our home in and our heart in and our treasure in and our pleasure in. That appeals to us. To have a God who can give us toys and pleasures and promises and blessings in this world and then take us to an even greater place in the future, that, that is attractive. But to have a God who comes and says, unless you lose your life, and find my life in you. You'll lose what you have. You'll lose what you call life forever. And when we begin to feel that work or that desire of the Spirit of God stirring in our hearts, showing us something of His purpose, we be begin to feel what that requires, what that means. <clears throat> then I think it's safe to say that man universally, speaking of how we are in the flesh, there is something in us that comes to love the cross and comes to love to, to lose our lives and to lose all of the, the ways that we are wasting time and wasting life. That is a, a desire and a, and a change that, cha that happens inside of us. But speaking of the natural man, I think it's very true to say that he dislikes and resists and hides from the work of the Spirit of God. And then he justifies himself and makes excuses and compares himself to his neighbor in order to feel okay about what he's doing. That's just how we all are. That's what we do. But when a person, anyone, a child, doesn't have to be a scholar. In fact, scholars sometimes find themselves in the hardest place to really submit to this spirit like, like a child. When a person, a, a six-year-old, a 70-year-old, it, it, when a, a person that has an illiterate person, when anybody begins to turn to God with a willing heart, with a softness in their heart, 
that wants more than religion, that wants more than that wants more than just beliefs in their brain or activities with their hands, but actually wants to have something of life felt and found and experienced on the inside. When, when someone of that kind of heart, an honest heart, a sincere heart, a seeking heart, begins to, whether with words or without words, begins to, to say or to show a willingness to be taught by God in their heart, then the Spirit of God begins to show them the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ. And what, I want to describe a little bit of what that, what that means. And a little bit of what that, what that feels like. When I say that the Spirit of God takes us to the cross... One of the very first ways that that begins to be real in our hearts is by showing us that there's not just one thing in man. If we have come to Christ, if we are believers, then there is not just, there's not just one seed, so to speak, in man. There's not just one will in man. Now, that, that may sound strange to, to people who haven't actually followed the Spirit very far. But if you have begun to follow the Spirit, then you begin to find and to feel in yourselves that there's, there's actually two things going on in, 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 in the heart of man, in the insides, in the inner man. A, a, a horse only has one thing going on. It's got horse stuff going on all the time. To tell a horse to deny himself doesn't make any sense because there's only one thing that a horse has. But to tell a person to deny self and to follow something else makes a lot of sense because there's not just self in man. What I'm trying to say is that when the Lord begins to work in your heart and stir your heart and shine a little bit of light in your heart, you used to think that maybe you were just you and that's, there was just, that's a strange way to say it. But, but you begin to discover that there's actually two very contrary things working in the heart of man. You begin to feel Two things. Now, Paul, Paul describes this very well. There's a whole bunch of scriptures we could turn to to, um, to try to, to describe this in, in, in language of, of the New Testament. But just here's one. Um, he says, for the good that I will to do. Now, this is him talking about his earlier life. This is not how he remained. You, you know this. You know that a lot of Christians get confused about that uh, because of what he says both in the previous chapter and the following chapter about the freedom that he experiences from this condition. I just want to throw that out in case people, because there's a lot of people who think that Paul is describing the current and constant experience of his life. He, he most certainly was not. And, uh, but it is the experience of everyone who begins to turn to the Spirit of God. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I, I will not to do, that I practice. 
Now, if I don't do what I will, what, if, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that is dwelling in me. And I find then that there's a law, a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law, I see another law in my members or my outward man warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. That's, that's one way to describe it. Another way, using some of the pictures from the Old Testament, is uh, you could talk about Rebecca. Rebecca has two, two children wrestling in her womb. And, uh, and, and, and she goes to God and she says, what's, what's going on with me? And the Lord says, there's two people inside of you. There's, there's, the, there's the first one that comes out wild and hairy and that lives hunting flesh in the open field. And there's, a, there's another one that comes out smooth and dwells in the tents. And these are two births that come from the same womb. Paul talks about this in, in Galatians chapter 5 where he says, The Spirit sets its desires against the flesh. And the flesh sets its desires against the spirit. These are the two things that I'm talking about. That you begin that that man begins to find in himself when when we're when we're turning to the Lord, when we're turning to the Spirit of God, when we're willing to be taught and instructed by the Spirit, the Lord begins to show us that there's something in us that has a will towards the flesh from the flesh. It has desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life. It has a nature, as it says in Romans chapter 8, that is enmity with God. It has, it has an inability, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, inability to know the things of the Spirit. This is how he describes the flesh, the nature of flesh. It cannot please God. It cannot submit to the law of God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But then there's this other birth or this other life that is also, uh, we, we also begin to, to feel. And as we, as we begin to, to pay attention to this spirit of God, and follow it, the division or the distinction between these two births starts to become more and more clear and obvious. It may, when we're not following it, when we're not paying attention to it very much, it may just feel like a nagging conscience from time to time. There's something in me that doesn't really like it when I do that. Something feels a little funny about but when we begin to pay attention to the Spirit, when we begin to give our will and surrender our will to the Spirit of God, those two things start to feel very different. And they begin to, to, to feel like they're coming from very different sources. They begin to feel like they're opposite to one another. You begin to understand what Paul means, that the one lusts against the other and the other lusts against the one. And these two things are contrary. That there is a law of righteousness written in the one and a law of sin, self, seeking self, 
for self and from self. You also start to feel that the one has a religion of its own. I mean self, flesh. It has a religion that it creates based on its own interpretations, its own imaginations, its own ideas and opinions and conclusions about God. The other is an inward experience of the nature and light and life of God beginning to grow in the heart like a seed, beginning to increase and shoot up, beginning to create a new will and desire in man after purity, cleanness, righteousness that wasn't there before. Paul says in Philippians that there's a God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That will starts to become felt, found. It's a new thing. It's like a seed, the smallest of seeds that's sown into a garden that's full of other weeds that are already enormous. But you can feel that there's a mustard seed there now too. It's alive. It's not a, not a concept. It's not a religious belief. It's not a philosophy. It's not a doctrine. It's a living seed. It's a pearl. It's a pearl of great price. It's really small, but it's valuable. It's worth more than everything you have. In fact, if you sold everything you have to get it, you, you'd be gaining from that transaction. It's a treasure hidden in a field. It's not easy to find. And you also, you can't keep it you can't, keep the fee- you can't keep what you have and still hold on to that treasure. You have to sell everything to gain it, to find it, to grab it, to hold it. It's like a little bit of leaven that's put into three lumps of meal. And, it's, and it spreads and it fills and it changes and it expands. It's like a bunch of these parables that I'm quoting or or paraphrasing from Jesus. It's something powerful. It's something alive. It's something that comes from God. It doesn't come from man. It's not just some good part of man. The scriptures are very clear that there is no such thing. Apart from God, there is no good in man. Every intent of his thought is only evil all the time. Genesis 5-6 or 6-5, one of those two. There is none who does good, not even one. Romans 3. But there is good in man. It's not from man, but it's sown as a seed into man. And if you ignore it, if you, if you feed the weeds and, and water the, the thorns, then that mustard seed gets choked out and it never grows and it stays as this little thing. It's kind of like the guy that Jesus gives a, a talent to and he gives two to this person and five to that person and these ones let theirs increase, but the guy with the one... He just buries it in the earth and never lets it increase. And at the end, it's taken from him. There is something good in man, but it's not from man. It's a gift from above. It's another life. It's another birth. It's another seed. And when you begin to follow the Spirit of God with your heart, I'm not talking about your brain. I tried following God with my brain It never changed my heart. But when you give your heart in meekness and lowliness and humility and nothingness in your own eyes and you're willing to be corrected and taught and you follow after him with your heart, 
and lay down what you've called your life, then more and more and more and more, these two things that at first were very hard to distinguish become like two different lives, two different worlds, two different lights that are shining in your heart, two different natures, one that you know has to end and another that you know has to increase and grow and fill and spread. Or nothing good is ever going to happen in your Christianity, in your heart. That's what happens. And what are these two things? What, what are these two things that the Spirit of God begins to show you and teach you? There are two births. The two seeds. One of them is the fallen life, the fallen life of man, the fallen life of flesh, governed by self-love, by self-obsession, by selfishness, by self-pleasure, by self-justification, a world of evil that allows the prince of evil access to deceive and to influence in so many ways. That's one of them. The other is a measure or gift of the grace of God thrown out like a seed on all types of soil with the intention of it growing. And as these things start to become different in you and different to you, then the Spirit of God will begin to teach you that everything depends when I say everything, I mean everything of your growth in, the, in, 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 in Christianity, your growth in spiritual life, everything, every aspect of it depends on your cooperation, so to speak. I don't mean you adding anything to it, but I mean you submitting yourself to it and not resisting the work of God in your heart to put down the one and to raise up the other. And now we're getting to the cross, the daily cross of Jesus Christ. Because everything of our Christianity, if it isn't, if it's just training the first birth to act more like a Christian, God sees right through that fig leaf. If it's just teaching that first birth spiritual facts and truths about the historical Jesus and the historical prophets and the future of, of, uh, of end times events, learning information, facts, truths, God sees right through that fig leaf. If it's not a real inward dying to that selfish, fallen, fleshly, proud, arrogant, self-seeking, falsely religious nature that in the Old Testament is, is shown to us in pictures like Cain, the first birth, and Abel is the second birth. Cain's offering is rejected. Abel's is accepted. Ishmael, the first birth, cast out of the house. Isaac, 
the second birth, receives all of the father's inheritance. Esau, the first birth, wants the blessing, but threw away his birthright. Jacob, the second birth, receives all that the father has. As we begin to cooperate and yield to and submit to the Spirit of God, then we find the Spirit of God bringing us to the cross of Jesus Christ. This isn't a... This isn't the historical cross, although the historical cross, I mean the outward cross of Christ, is absolutely essential, necessary, and without the outward cross, nobody could experience an inward cross. The outward cross is the work of Christ whereby he offered himself as a sacrifice, whereby he opened a door of redemption with blood, blood on the doorposts, so to speak. It's, it's the way by which Christ provided a way to forgive all sins that are that are past he creates a new covenant in his blood and invites us into it all of that was through the outward cross but this cross that i'm talking about the inward cross is the way by which we come to experience the benefits of what christ accomplished in the outward cross i'm talking about the daily cross i'm talking about walking with the spirit of god in that familiarity that I was talking about in the beginning, in such a way that death is brought upon the transgressing nature in man. And life, not a new version of Jason, not me made better, me made new, but the newness of his life is given, is grown, is formed, and comes to reign in me. What is the daily cross? What does it mean to take up the daily cross? This is such an important question. I don't know how... how I, well, I was going to say how we don't talk about this more in general in the, in the church because there's so many scriptures that talk about it. Paul talks about dying daily. He talks about caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus so that the life of the Lord Jesus might be manifest in our flesh. Paul talks about partaking in his sufferings, being conformed to his death and attaining to the experience of his resurrection. Paul talks about putting off the old man he talks about becoming dead to sin, dead to self, crucified to the world, crucified. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live. All of these verses are talking about the believer's experience of a cross, not just the believer's belief in an outward historical cross, but a believer's participation in that cross as an experience in our own hearts. What is the daily cross? If I had to try to define it in a few words, I would say it is how the Spirit of God will teach you and I to live. It's the way that Christians are supposed to live. In fact, I think it's the only 
safe way to live. And it has to do with, uh, uh, Jesus says it more clearly, I think, than any other place. He says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, and follow me. Taking up the cross is about, it has to do with submitting to the Spirit of God in such a way that we deny, we turn from, we don't feed, we don't make provision for the lusts, the desires, the deceitful desires, the false light of that first fallen, sinful, selfish birth in us. That's half of it. That's the one half. You can't continue to feed the thing that you're hoping to die and expect that it's going to to end in you. That's why Paul says, make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lust. When I was a, a younger Christian... I didn't understand these verses. I didn't even know these verses. And I, I certainly didn't understand much of what it meant to, to cooperate with the Spirit of God. But as I began to pay attention to the Spirit of God, I began to feel, and again, I had no language for this at, this time, at that time, but I began to feel different ways that I was feeding the very thing that Christ was trying to crucify in me. And I also began to find and to feel that certain ways of living, certain things I was seeking, ways, things I was doing with my time, with my heart, that I was crucifying, you could say, or resisting, or quenching, or grieving the very thing that Christ was trying to give and to make grow and to fill and, 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 and to reign in me. I didn't understand that. I, I didn't, again, I didn't understand that, that so much depended upon my being attentive and submissive to that. Somebody hears that and says, oh, you're just talking about re- legalism. You know, stop doing this, start doing that. That's not what I'm talking. I'm not talking about trying to make a list of things and doing those things in order to please God. I'm talking about two natures trying to live in man. I'm talking about not feeding the one so that the other can grow. I'm talking about Israel and the Philistines. Both, When they're both trying to share the land, one of them is going to get smaller and one of them is going to get bigger. And that was the story of history, I mean, of Israel and their history for hundreds of pages of this book. When they tried to share the land with that which was uncircumcised flesh, that flesh grew up bigger than they could handle oppressed them, destroyed them. And that's what I found in me. Even when I was 19 years old, I remember. I remember doing things. When I first started to feel that call to turn inward and to pay attention to the the sound of this voice that wasn't speaking to me in words, but it was speaking to me. And what it was saying is that, Jason, there's two things in man. There's two things in you. And if you live this way, if you continue to live the way you've lived your whole life, 
then you'll continue to feed the very thing that you're asking me to put to death. If you continue to live that way, as it says in Hebrews 6, 6, then you can crucify again to yourself the appearing of the Son of God in you. And so the daily cross, I said again, is what the Spirit will teach you, how the Spirit will teach you to live. Because there's two things in you. It may be very hard right now for some of you to feel the moving and stirring and convicting of the, of the gift of God in your heart. It might seem far away, but that's not because it's not there. It's because maybe for years, weeds and thorns and other plants have grown real thick in the garden of your heart. But if you will turn to him, then you're going to be taught by the Spirit to deny the will and the way and the false light and the false promises and the false deceiving pleasures of that first birth. He will teach you that. And he will also teach you to continually, inwardly submit yourself like a little child to the other birth, to the other life, to the other seed, to the working of God's spirit in man. Nobody starts in a good place with this. Don't let the enemy tell you it's too late or that you're too far gone. Nobody starts in a place where it's easy or natural to take up the cross. It does end very light and easy after you have borne that yoke for a while, but it doesn't begin light and easy. It's not light for the transgressing nature. It's light to that other nature in man. Taking up the daily cross every day means living every day in a way that you stay under it. Have you ever thought about why, why does he use that language, carrying the cross? Well, you know, when you carry something, you're always feeling the weight of it. If you're carrying a big piece of wood, you never stop feeling the pressure of it, the weight of it pushing upon you. In that sense, carrying the cross is staying under the weight of it. I mean, under the way that it teaches, the way that it shines, the way that it convicts, the way that it shows you what needs to die and shows you what needs to live, to not squirm out from underneath it, but to stay where it is, to, to learn that yoke. Jesus says, learn of me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. Take my yoke upon you. What is that yoke? It's his cross. And when it has worn out and when it has crushed and put away and put to death in us that contrary will and nature, then it is so light and so easy and so joyful. But that is what, that is what I think it means 
to learn to carry his cross. It's, it's, it's staying under the Lord with your heart turned to him. It's following his spirit in, in a way that the, that the cross of Christ yokes down that, that contrary nature in us. It's living in a, an intentional submission to an implanted seed, an implanted power, to the Spirit of God, not just outwardly trying to tell you what to do, inwardly trying to cause you to be something totally new. It's giving your attention and your mind and your heart to it. It's obeying its corrections, its reproofs, The grace of God, Paul says, appears to all men. It brings salvation. It doesn't save all, but it it has the intention to, the desire to. It brings salvation. And it teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. And it teaches us to look for and wait for, as Frank was mentioning this morning, the blessed appearing of, of that life of Jesus Christ in the heart. And the most sure way, I'm going to try to finish up here, but the most sure way to not experience the life and the righteousness and the purity and the love and the joy and the presence and the transforming power of Jesus Christ, the most sure way to have those things remain being words on a page and not experiences of the heart is by living our lives as an enemy to the cross of Christ. Now, how do you how do you how do you live as an enemy to the cross of Christ? There's, there's a scripture in Philippians chapter three that I think describes it very well. Um, for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction whose God is their appetite their own desire whose glory is in their shame and who set their mind on earthly things. How do, you, how do you live as an enemy of the cross? All you have to do is to love and live in and serve and live for that first birth and to set your heart on its world, to have your treasure in earthly things. Because man is either submitting inwardly to a crucifying power, to the power of God that crucifies flesh, crucifies disobedience, crucifies carnality, crucifies worldly-mindedness, crucifies the desires and lusts of our flesh, crucifies everything in us that has a different source and nature than Jesus Christ. Man is either submitting to that inward power, that inward cross of Christ, that changes him, that transforms us into his image and nature. Or man is subjecting himself to another 
power, another spirit, another nature that's going in a totally different direction. And that's why I said a few minutes ago that the Spirit of God leads us to the cross as the only safe way to live. It's safe because it keeps us with him. It's safe because while we're hugging the cross, clinging to the cross, loving the cross, staying under the cross, then we're staying so close to that spirit that most people run away from. We stay so close to him. We can feel him. We can feel him teaching. We can feel him correcting. We can feel him warning. We can feel him changing. We can feel him destroying old things. Not all at once, not in one day or even one week. But you can feel old things being put away. You can feel dead things being trimmed off. You can feel, you, you can feel a change taking place in the heart. You can feel something new begin to rise up. New, a new will, a new heart, a new spirit, new desires, new understanding, new love that comes from a new source. The only way to stay safe in this journey, and that's why Jesus said the only way to be his disciple is to deny yourself. Take up your cross every day and follow me. It's how we live, friends. It's, it's how the Spirit of God teaches us to live. And it's not just for the elite. It's not just for the apostles and the prophets. It's for every single one of us because we're not all called to be apostles. We're not all called to be prophets. We're not all called to be pastors and teachers or whatever other role we could have in the church, but we are all called to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are all called, every single one of us are called out of that sinful, transgressing birth that is called flesh or Adam in Scripture. All of us are called to be saints. All of us are called to put off the old man and put on the new man. And there's only one way to do it. It's by the submission of our hearts to the Spirit who does the work. It's not by just believing that there is such a Spirit or that there is such a work. It's by living with that cross right on top, watchfully, carefully, humbly, with our hearts, not with our brains, with our hearts laid down before him. And if, if we're willing to live that way, then we are going to live, to learn very well in time. It's, it's all progressive, but we, we are going to learn very well what it means to walk in the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, to put to death the deeds of the body by submitting to the Spirit. We're going to learn what it means to pray by the Spirit because there's another thing in us that wants to pray too. We're going to learn what it means to worship God in the Spirit, like Jesus said in John chapter 4. Because Cain has an offering too that's not accepted. We have to learn to worship in the Spirit. He'll teach us all of that. He'll show us the distinction, the division between that which pleases God and that which cannot please Him. And in that way, all of these verses that I referenced at the beginning about 
the work of God done in and by the Spirit of God in the heart of man will become not just verses that we believe. A lot of you know me and know that my greatest fear is to just believe a whole bunch of true things and never really live the truth. Well, that will never be our story if we cling to this Spirit and let Him bring us to the cross of Christ. I'm going to... I'm going to stop with that and open it up for discussion or comments or questions or whatever.